Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Hall of Famer Brianna Scurry to talk about her new memoir, My Greatest Save. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Brianna Scurry in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you? Doing all right, sir. When uh, There was a certain point in my life in which Brianna Scurry, for me, was word association with women's football. Like She was such an ever-present in goal for the U.S. that when I think of that sport. When I think of the women's game, I think of Brianna Scurry, perhaps even to this day. So I'm very much looking forward to this interview. That's awesome. I actually got to spend a fair amount of time with Bri in New York, where I live, uh, this past week, because we did an interview for this podcast. And then we also went out to dinner uh, last Monday night with her wife because she was in town to promote the release of her book, Uh, went on Good Morning America on Tuesday morning. I think she was on the CBS morning show Thursday morning. Her book is terrific, so I think everyone should check it out. But uh, let's catch up because there's a lot of stuff that's been going on over the last week. And we'll hit on a few things here. But the first is LAFC, which won again on Sunday, which is top of the league in MLS when it comes to points, and which has now signed Gareth Bale to a non-designated player deal. Giorgio Chiellini, not long ago, to a non-designated player deal. And this weekend, they announced Carlos Vela has extended his contract, designated player contract. They've still got a DP slot open, Chris. This is a team making a huge statement this weekend. And they're already really good. They're already top of the supporter shield standings. They made, actually, in some ways... These are the, the Hollywood moves, right? They're our, they're our team in LA, but the business that actually wins league titles, like the one that has won Seattle, the CONCACAF Champions League, they did in the winter. It's with a bunch of guys that probably people who are interested in Gareth Bale probably haven't heard of. Ilya Sanchez into midfield, Kellen Acosta into midfield, Ryan Hollingshead into the back line, uh, Maxine Crepeau in goal. These are intra-league acquisitions, guys that have done a tremendous job. And then you add, you know, a World Cup winning center back into the mix. Gareth Bale, who's been one of the most dynamic attacking players of the last 10, 15 years in the European game. And all of a sudden, this team is unbelievably formidable. Um, I, I do, I am curious how... Gareth Bale and Giorgio Chiellini helped them get over the line. This has not been a team that even when they were good under Bob Bradley and good under Steve Chirondo, they have not been a good tournament team, in, meaning in, in U.S. Open Cups and MLS Cup playoffs. They've just not been a team that does well in single elimination games. I don't know if there is a particular nous that you need in order to be good in those moments, but LAFC have not had it in the past. So I, I'm really interested how it goes. But for me, the biggest takeaway is they bring in Gareth Bale, they bring in, uh, bring in Giorgio Chiellini, and they don't need these guys to be good. Like they, it's it's extra. It's it's a bonus if you get one of the best center backs of the modern era to play like that for you in Major League Soccer. To get Gareth Bale to play like he has done for you in Major League Soccer, they don't need it. They'll be just fine. And that's the place you want to be in when you bring in these high-priced superstars, the quote retirement league nonsense that people talk about. You want to be in a position where you don't really need those guys to make or break your team. 
Great points, all of them. And you're right, LAFC does not need Gareth Bale and Giorgio Chiellini to win games in MLS. They've proved it already without them. And I like this for a lot of reasons. I wouldn't have liked this very much if they had both been designated player signings or if even one of them had been a designated player signing. The fact is, neither one is a DP signing. So they're not spending that much money. They're TAM signings. And for me, this is how I like to see 30-something European stars regarded, treated in MLS when they come to the league. Now, you're going to have some on the very high end, like a Zlatan, who deserve to be designated player paid. But I think both Bale and Chiellini at this point are TAM guys. Now, maybe Bale becomes a DP guy based on his performance uh, in the early parts of this contract. But that's where I think big-name European players should be in MLS at this point in time. Because I do think Gareth Bale helps move the needle on national television audiences. I'm not sure exactly how much, but I think he will a little bit. And MLS needs some of that. They need some more national appeal where you and I are going to want to turn on an LAFC game in part to see how Gareth Bale does. Um, I think that's the same way I felt about the extra incentive to turn on an LA Galaxy game to see how Zlatan Ibrahimovic did, what he did, how he did it. And I think that's important for MLS's new TV deal. And I hope more MLS teams spend the money or do what it takes to get nationally relevant players into the league, because that's part of the package. And MLS hasn't done that very well over the years. And this is a good sign. Yeah, I I do kind of wonder how the league could balance both of these things, because I agree with you. I think you need, you know, there's a lot of scoring a bunch of goals is good for business. And it's interesting and it's fun to watch. But like you said, when it doesn't work, it's so punitive and you have so few resources that it does, I think, dissuade particularly big market teams from doing it. Um, Really, the Galaxy are the only team that to this point have have made that sort of signing. Um, LAFC now kind of being into that. NYCFC did it at the beginning and it went so poorly that they don't do it anymore. And they succeed and they won MLS Cup. But I think if they had a big name in their team, they might have more national relevance than having won MLS Cup. Like the the on-field success hasn't done it for them. So I I wish there was more room in which you could pay a big name superstar what they're worth. I think Gareth Bale will probably eventually make DP money. Um, Chiellini, probably just because he's so old and he's done so much, probably doesn't need the money at this point. He just kind of wants to try something new. Um, But... I do think there's room for more stardom in this league um, without it being so punitive against the salary cap, without being stuck with albatross contracts you can't get out of. Um, I I think that the league should be interested in stardom, not care about the retirement league thing because they're doing so many things that are positive in terms of youth development and in terms of not needing these big-name superstars, but the league still needs it, Uh, particularly as they move into an era with Apple in which you're trying to garner headlines that not only get people to watch your games, but maybe even buy a subscription. You know, I'm, I'm going to be curious, too, to see what Lorenzo Insigne does with Toronto because he's getting paid far more than anybody in the history of the league. Definitely a DP player. Is he going to be worth it? Is he going to move the needle? We'll have to wait and see on yeah, that. Yeah, in Houston as well. Correct. Now, you know, there's clearly a Mexican national team player uh, joining a team that honestly has not been very relevant in its own city. Um, 
And mm-hmm. your point about NYCFC is interesting to me because I live in New York City. They won the championship last year. They're not that relevant here in New York City either. And so I, I kind of hope they can do some things like LAFC is doing here, which is show that you can win without the big name European stars, but then find some big name European stars and bring them in on TAM deals. <laughs> or, or low DP deals. Who knows? I, I think there's certainly something that's a possibility there. And I think if you're LA, New York, Miami, you have an extra ability, I think, to, to get guys on TAM deals than maybe Kansas City or Columbus. That's just my sense. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but interesting times afoot. I I like that I'm going to be looking forward to seeing some MLS games here during the transfer window with new players coming in, see how that goes. Um, I want to talk U.S. women's national team because they are playing games Saturday night, U.S. 3, Columbia nil. Though this game didn't have any goals until the second half. What are your thoughts? Well, I I do think that in the first half, they certainly had plenty of chances, including uh, from the penalty spot, a penalty that was eventually saved. Mal Pugh missed an absolute sitter in the first 10 minutes of the game as well that she absolutely has to score. But I I really appreciated the fluidity in the U.S. attack, even when they weren't scoring goals. I thought that going forward, they were a lot better than I've seen them at times in the past. Uh, I'm still interested in how Flatko Andonovsky picks this team. You look at Sophia Smith starting, Ashley Hatt starting, um, some players who've done really well in NWSL um, are getting the chance to play in these big games or in, the, in these friendlies, and we'll see in the CONCACAF qualifiers as well. But for me, the big takeaway anytime I see her play is Rose Lavelle. I just, I love the way that she plays. What enormous skill, plays Hollywood passes for bo- the, the, the first two goals that were absolutely exquisite. Just enormous quality in the area. Could have chipped the keeper in the first half, but was doing it with her left foot going away from goal, so couldn't get the foot wrap around it to, to, to redirect it back towards goal. For me, on her day, is still not only the best U.S. player, but probably, and this is a big shout, I'll be curious for your, your perspective, uh, having a bit more historical perspective than I do, the most talented player that the U.S. has ever fielded. I, I just think that the skill and quality that she has, the passing ability, the vision... Like, what a sensational player Rose Lavelle is. She's phenomenal, and I love watching her play. I guess it's one of those age-old questions about how much have you actually done to merit what, like, the superlative you just gave, right? Because I've had people say Christian Pulisic is the best U.S. men's player of all time. Well, he's 23 years old, and he's never played in a World Cup. Is that possible? Um, And... Mm -hmm then the question becomes, how much have you actually done? Um, I think Rose Lavelle, and I've said this plenty of times, lots of people have, could be the best player in the world. But she's also a player who didn't get much playing time at Man City when she was there. So I, I think, I, I do think she needs to establish herself as the best player at club level in her league. Is she that right now? Nope, she's not. She needs to establish herself as the best player at on the national team. At times, it feels that way, but it's not always there, the product, right? And so, you know, I I, I think that's all part of the discussion, but I love her talent. I I love her vision, Um, all of it. And when she's on, she's so entertaining. So uh, we will see. Sophia Smith with two goals, by the way. 
Um, Taylor Corniak gets her first goal for the national team in her first game toward the end. And they play Columbia again in a couple of days. This is all moving toward the CONCACAF W Championship, which is another word for qualifying for the Women's World Cup and the Olympics. And I'll be down there for games two and three. It's an interesting tournament, Chris, because now that there's a 32-team World Cup on the women's side, that uh, all the U.S. has to do is finish in the top two of its four-team group in this tournament. So it's possible that just winning two games, the first two games of this group against Jamaica and Haiti, will be enough to qualify the U.S. for the World Cup, which is a little crazy. Um, and then they've got Mexico in the third group game, which could be really interesting because it's going to be taking place in Monterey, Mexico, the women's soccer capital of Mexico. Um, and that could be a really cool thing just uh, atmosphere wise. So I'm going to be down there for games two and three so that I, I, I think those are the operative games. And then when it comes to Olympic qualifying, the U.S. has, has to win the tournament to get the automatic bid. They wouldn't be out of the Olympics if they don't win the tournament because there's more playoffs afterward. But um, so that's sort of going to be what's at stake. But it is very clear at this point that if you're expecting all veterans to start for the U.S. in these big games, that's not going to happen. Right. And especially if it's anything like the under 20 championship, which is going on in the men's side right now, incredibly tight schedules uh, that they're trying to, to, to pack all of these games into. So the, the the W championship, I mean, that's really interesting. And I really, it's the same thing on the on, on the men's side, the under 20 side. The tight field really makes the qualifying tournament that much more interesting. The U.S., I think, entered a 30-team, 32-team under 20s tournament. And they have to get all the way to the final in order to qualify for the Olympics. There's only two spots, and we've seen how often uh, the U.S. on the men's side have kind of fallen at that hurdle. But, I mean, really... I can't remember a time in which the U.S. women have played in qualifying matches that felt like they were ever in peril. So I'll be curious if they ever have that moment of doubt. Uh, you mentioned playing Mexico away. Certainly hope there's a great crowd, and that crowd is a test. Um, and I hope that Mexico makes this World Cup, this, as, you, as you mentioned, um, uh, a greater chance of it playing at home You know, with a fairly low bar to clear. I hope that Mexico gets in the World Cup because they're – women's game is growing incredibly. Uh, if you look at, as you mentioned, the two teams in Monterrey, uh, Rayados um, and Tigres are tremendous in terms of getting crowds in and you can really see the growth and you hope that another appearance in the World Cup will only accelerate that growth. But I, I just can't see moments in which the U.S. are going to be struggling against any of these CONCACAF teams really that, that severely other than Canada. No, all good points. A few things I would say. There was one time the U.S. women had trouble making the World Cup. That was for the 2011 Women's World Cup when Mexico beat the U.S. in Cancun to qualify for the World Cup. It remains the only time the U.S. has ever lost to Mexico on the women's side. This was late 2010. It forced the U.S. to go into a home-and-home -home playoff with Italy for the very last spot in World Cup 2011, the U.S. ended up qualifying by getting past Italy, but it was not an easy situation. I think Alex Morgan sort of made her big senior breakout at that point. A um, couple of other things I would mention is 
how many times I, and I finally muted the ESPN FC Twitter handle because I just couldn't handle the, like the thirst for engagement anymore. How many <laughs> times count over the next couple of weeks, they will post a picture of the Monterey Stadium that has the mountain right outside it, which is truly gorgeous. All right. But like if you're just doing it, posting it for engagement, like I, it's one of the things I couldn't handle after a while, but it is a beautiful stadium and, and count how many times that Twitter handle does that. <laughs> there, there, there are a few, there are a few uh, soccer Twitter accounts that are largely engagement based and you can, you can tell from a mile away. I, um, and then also too, if you have any interest, you mentioned what's going on with women's soccer in Mexico. Listeners can go back and listen to my interview with Maria Fernanda Mora a few weeks ago about soccer, women's soccer in Mexico, because she had a lot of good information in there about really interesting players for the Mexican national team, for the Mexican teams, um, what Mia Fischel is doing, the American down with Tigres uh, and doing well there right now. And by the way, they just signed Jenny Hermoso for Pachuca out, out of Barcelona this past week, which sort of rocked the women's soccer club game to see that happen. I don't know how many people thought Jenny Hermosa would go to play for Pachuca, but that will be happening. And we'll be talking about men's transfer window stuff here in just one second. I did want to bring up, I knew on Friday, the second that um, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade came down, that there was a women's U.S. women's national team press conference later in the day and Megan Rapino was not originally on the list of speakers. I kind of knew she would be because it makes sense. Uh, she has spoken at length uh, several times over the years when big social events happen like that. And she did on Friday. I ended up writing, uh, putting all her comments out on my site. Um, and that has taken over a, a big portion of the weekend obviously um you know there's there is soccer still going on but that was in the background for the u.s women's game and also too it, it's just it has been interesting in the way leagues and teams are addressing it and so what we saw over the weekend or at least starting friday was you had some leagues put out statements um, supporting women unhappy with the Supreme Court decision. So the NBA did that with the WNBA. Um, the USL did that as well. They've got men's teams, they've got women's teams in the USL. Uh, trying to think of like other leagues, NFL, MLB, NHL did not. MLS has not. And I know that you have a slightly different opinion than mine. So I believe that MLS should have put out a statement. I'm not surprised they didn't because the owner with his name on the lead championship trophy in MLS, Phil Anschutz, has spent millions and millions and millions of dollars over the years in uh, anti-choice stuff, uh, lobbying, media, all sorts of that stuff. Um, so I'm not necessarily surprised, but I am disappointed because I do think that MLS... Soccer in America, this is a fact, is left-leaning. The fans. Not all of them, but the vast majority are, actually. Um, and Roe v. Wade, uh, overturning it, not supported by the vast majority of Americans, not supported by the vast majority of MLS fans. These are the facts. 
So I am disappointed that MLS hasn't done this. And I, uh, you know, some MLS teams individually did, not many. And I know you have a different opinion. Yeah, and I think that's okay. I think we should express them. So I've kind of stopped caring in the aftermath of these big decisions, what professional sports teams put out. Now, I think it's very important that from a policy standpoint that they are supportive of if, if families that are underneath, the, kind of like what Dick Sporting Goods' statement they put out in terms of if you need to go somewhere else because abortion is not legal in your state and you have to take care of who you have to take care of, will help you with, you know, out-of-pocket costs, which is in and of itself fairly gross. So from a policy standpoint, I do think it's important that they clarify with their employees um, that some of that stuff is okay. I think I saw that Chicago Fire did just that. But the public statements, the we believe that this is a, a right that, you know, and we disagree with the decision of the Supreme Court, it just doesn't mean anything to me anymore. When, like you said, there are owners within sports leagues that – donate politically massive sums of money towards the campaign that eventually overturned Roe v. Wade. This has been a generations-long effort with many politicians put in, with this being a primary goal. And now we'll see what the secondary goals are because it was left open in the Supreme Court's decision. What's next? Clarence Thomas very clearly said, this decision, that decision, this decision. We can have a look. And that has been a generations-long billion-dollar-led effort into overturning the constitutional rights of Americans. And we know that some of the people who put out pithy statements saying X, Y, and Z are the same ones who are behind the scenes lobbying and going against these very same efforts. So I just, it doesn't matter. This is now, in my view, about the power, about how owners are now going to work to either turn this around or what the fight is on the other end. It's not about statements anymore because we've seen the movement in this country to get things like this done, to get Roe v. Wade overturned. We'll see what's next. They, they, it wasn't about statements for them. It was about raw political power and the acquisition of it. And how do you turn that raw political power into bending the agenda to your will? And if Liberals, people on the other side, or people who are pro-choice want to see those things overturned, you have to do it via the means of power, not via the means of statement. And so when people are ready to get their hands dirty and do everything that the conservative movement has done in order for this to happen, that's when the change happens. I respect your cynicism, uh, Chris. I mean, like, and, and that's exactly what it is. And it's interesting because we had Lindsey Barron's, uh, the president of the Oakland Roots in Seoul on last week and talked with her about it's one thing to say something as an organization. It's another thing to do it. But they also put out a statement. And there, I know that that club in particular is going to do stuff. And so... I do think it sends a message that MLS is not refusing to release a statement for the reasons you're just saying, right? Like they're refusing to release a statement because MLS owners, some influ very influential ones like Phil Anschutz, literally don't support it. So, I mean, it, there is a difference, right? And so I, like, that's how I, I look at it. I know very well, there are lots of people I know who work inside MLS uh, including the league headquarters, who were deeply disappointed with their organization. And I guess what else I would say about this is, and this gets back to 
the fan base for MLS is very different from the fan base for the NFL. And we saw this a little bit where that divide, uh, the divide between the politics of several MLS owners who are very influential, very far right in some cases, that that can be an issue. So like a couple years ago when MLS tried to ban certain symbols inside stadiums and that caused a real issue in certain places like Portland, Seattle, and MLS eventually backed off on that. And so occasionally we see this. I'm just curious to see where this goes from here because the MLS fan base, not everywhere, but in most places is pretty left. And I think this gap between the politics of the owners in MLS and the politics of the fans in MLS is much bigger than in other sports leagues. And will that have any impact? Will we see that? I don't know. In other news, um, I did report, I'll, I'll direct people to go read my Friday newsletter where there's a little more stuff on the fallout of the World Cup 26 cities reveal from last week. Los Angeles and Miami were up in the air on the last day. And what I had been told uh, by people I spoke to was that the sort of last minute addendum that FIFA had sent forcing bid cities to get agreements again with local politicians and various potential funding sources, that there was pushback from LA and Miami in particular because they knew that FIFA wanted, needed them for the World Cup, maybe more so than some other cities uh, that ended up getting in. And so I'm told that there were uh, some concessions made by FIFA on the last day. There were calls that took place with both those cities on the last day. When you see how the sausage is made, Chris, in anything, hmm. you can... Uh, it, it can get pretty interesting. And clearly the, the sausage that FIFA made, it, it, it was pretty haphazard uh, up until the very last second. That's the part of it that's so weird to me. Like I, I would have figured that like they decided the host city six weeks before the announcement and this is just the announcement. Like I'm surprised that there's 11th hour negotiations. Um, I, I do really find interest in that dynamic that you bring up, which is, you know, LA and Miami are probably cities that'd be like, yeah, I mean, it'd be great if we had the World Cup, but We'll have a lot of world-class sporting events, whether or not the World Cup is here. No, we're good. And I wonder <laughs> how many places in the world would say that. Like, I wonder how many places in the entire world would have, like, the gumption to be like, nah, we're not really doing politics your way. We're not doing this your way. Um, but, I mean, fair play. I mean, it's probably, you know, conscientious uh, city and state representatives doing good work on behalf of their constituents, you know, not wanting to spend more taxpayer money than they absolutely have to. So that's good. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's fascinating. This is probably one of the few countries in the world in which you'd be like, nah, we're good. We don't, we don't want to, we don't want to go the full freight. And like you said, like how crazy is it that the FIFA world cup would go, well, you're going to, you're going to want us in your city. And the city will be like, no, like, like it's it's so like arrogant in a way, but arrogant in a cool way that like the biggest sporting event in the world is like we're not going to accept all of your conditions because we're LA. You need us. You need Los Angeles. Imagine having a world. Imagine explaining to the world you're not going to have Los Angeles as part of your World Cup because we didn't want to accept your terms and all the things, all the shady business that FIFA does on the side. Like that would be kind of incredible. 
<laughs> Chicago, by the way, just said no from the start. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is still pretty incredible. The home of U.S. soccer, Chicago. And then let's talk about one more thing before we get to Brianna Scurry. And that is we're getting some here we goes from our friend Fabrizio Romano on the men's side in terms of players making big moves. You've already seen the official announcement. Sadio Mane to Bayern Munich from Liverpool. Gabriel Jesus to Arsenal. Sven Botman to Newcastle United center back. Calvin Phillips signing about to sign officially with Manchester City from Leeds United. Paul Pogba about to move on a free to Juventus. And then Romelu Lukaku on loan back to Inter after a dismal year at Chelsea, which has the impact potentially of free agent Paolo Dybala not having much interest. And we don't really know where he's going to go. Yeah, and Dybala is a fascinating one because... He is a very old school number 10. He is not part of the pressing game, right? The, 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 the defensive pressing game. And like, if I were a team, I'd be like, well, Kevin De Bruyne does all the things that you do, but he's also one of the hardest working defenders on the field. What's your excuse for not defending like Kevin De Bruyne does? And I think that's probably where the game is going. And you look at, for example, James Rodriguez's struggles to hang on with a major European club. And he's bounced around in different places, trying to stay in Europe. That number 10 position played classically in which you don't do hardworking running. I I, I don't know if there's a ton of places for it. I actually think MLS is one of the few places where that still kind of exists. Um, But Dybala is stuck right now. He'll eventually find a club and a good club, but I'll be curious how exactly it goes about doing it. The Lukaku thing, the, the overall picture at Chelsea. So you have... Lukaku, which I'm curious how, like, how does Thomas Tuchel get away with that, as it were? <laughs> like, if you're if you're Todd Bowley, who's now the chairman of Chelsea, how do you go to do you go to Thomas Tuchel and be like, hey, you made the last owner pay like a hundred million for Lukaku, and it just like didn't work after a year? Like, why why should I go and buy the striker that you want when you couldn't? Like, Lukaku is a great player, it just didn't work, and it was a disaster fit from day one presumably Thomas Tuchel spent a lot of time thinking about his forward line before saying I want Lukaku and then couldn't figure it out at all like it doesn't that doesn't make any sense and Chelsea are kind of in the midst of reworking their forward line uh there's uh, rumors out there that they that they they might also let uh Timo Werner go to Germany again bring in Raheem Sterling which is an interesting fit in and amongst all their attacking talent there's been rumors linking Christian Pulisic to Liverpool so there's all kinds of stuff going on with that Chelsea front line. I'm fascinated by Chelsea generally because uh, it was announced that Marina Granovskaya is going to leave the club and that Todd Bowley right now is running the show. Um, and this is a guy who doesn't have experience in the European football transfer market. So uh, Chelsea are a real interesting watch, but there's a lot of movement. Calvin Phillips to Man City is a big deal. Um, and Leeds are going to reshape their team. It's been reported that they're interested in bringing Tyler Adams in, and basically Jesse Marsh is going to field the MLS All-Stars in, uh, in Leeds. But um, it's, it's really fascinating, the, the amount of movement that's going on, and Phillips, for me, is a big one because it's cover for Rodrigo. They're basically now too deep at every position uh, now that they let Fernandinho go and Man City go again. Yeah, it's going to be interesting seeing Sadio Mane play for Bayern Munich, and I'm sure he'll be perfectly fine. And it's been interesting how little rancor there has been about from Liverpool or anybody about 
Mane leaving, I'm personally going to be bummed out not to see Sadio Mane play for Liverpool. I think he's been fantastic and, and a really important part of everything they've done. And I'm curious to know, just sort of like, is he like, why did he really want to make this move? Because it, it, it could be a, a money thing. His salary may be higher at Bayern Munich than it was at Liverpool. It's interesting because it's a reverse, essentially, of what Thiago Alcantara did in it, also with the same lack of rancor. Uh, leaving Bayern Munich, where Bayern was like, oh, you served us really well for a really long time. We're cool with you wanting to go check out the Premier League play for Liverpool. And now it goes in the opposite direction with Sadio Mane. But Mane is not a guy who speaks out very much. And so I, I, I'm hoping that somebody interviews him at some point and actually gets an answer because I, I just would be curious to know. I agree. And th- there's a lot of dynamics there because I think first off, you see Sadio Mane probably recognizing the writing on the wall. They bring in Luis Diaz. He has to shift centrally. Then they bring in Darwin Nunez. And now he's in a he's in a fight. Now, he'll have a fight at Bayern as well. I mean, it's not like they don't have talented wingers. They have Kingsley Coleman and Leroy Sané. Like, this is a, a pretty stacked team. So he's probably going to have to fight for a place there too. But I, I just wonder if in the era of modern football, you have to basically say, you know, seven years – is good. We had a great time. This was tremendous for me. This was tremendous for you. We did everything we wanted to do, and now I'm ready for a new challenge. Like it could just be that simple. I also think that you know Liverpool had a very difficult job on given the lack of success before that front three came together and the amount of success that they had with Mane, Firmino, and Salah, how they were going to regime change. And I actually think they've done a pretty brilliant job of it so far by having brought in Jota Nunez and Luis Diaz to help uh, facilitate that future, but also maintaining what is incredibly strong emotional connection to that group of players. So I I think Jurgen Klopp is probably taking the lessons from some other big time managers where it's just sometimes you got to clear out two or three guys because you have to bring in a new impetus into your team. So what do you think is the first choice front three for Liverpool? Is it Salah, Nunez and Diaz? Probably. Um, I I would be surprised if Nunez is that from the off, just because sometimes players do take a beat to settle into that hard pressing. I'll be curious how ready to hit the ground running Nunez is. I think we'll probably see a lot of Diogo Jota early. Um, There's also the matter of Salah's contract extension to be worked out. Be curious how how that ends up working. But yeah, I would probably say from the beginning of the season, it'll be Salah, Nunez, Luis Diaz with Jota kind of being that fourth attacker. And maybe with some money from the from the Mane sale, they go out and maybe bring in another younger player who they can develop. They've certainly done that before. Um, but yeah, I would say that's probably the front three. All right, Chris. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Brianna Scurry. And just a reminder, since you're podcast listeners, My Greatest Save is also available as an audiobook. Our guest now is a U.S. soccer legend and Hall of Famer. Brianna Scurry won the 1999 Women's World Cup and two Olympic gold medals. And she has a phenomenal new memoir out written with Wayne Coffey called My Greatest Save, The Brave Barrier-Breaking Journey of a World Champion Goalkeeper. Bri, congratulations on the book and thanks for coming on the show. Grant, thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, it's been a fantastic week so far and I'm really excited to spread the word about my book and, and talk with you. Well, I've read the book. It's absolutely terrific. 
There's so much there. I learned a ton, even though I followed you closely for your entire career and written about you back in the 90s. You don't hold back in this book, (laughs) which is part of what makes a memoir worthwhile. But the decision to write your story and to not hold back, what went into that? So in 2019, my brain trust, which is uh, my business manager, Krissa, who's also my wife, and Patrick, my publicist, we sat down and thought about um, if we should write a book now and what would that entail and what would that be like and asked me if I was ready to tell my story. I felt like I've had a book in me for 20 years, maybe two. Um, so I sat with it and I realized that I had to be more than okay and completely um, uh, feel good about telling all my story, not just the, the nice parts and I didn't want to sanitize anything and I really had to be okay with telling the things that weren't so great, um, you know, including things on the field in my career and then things in my life also. And I realized that I was, I had enough distance away from those things to be able to be um, a little bit more objective and to go into those rooms where I may have barricaded the door to never, to never approach in my mind again and uh, go in there and, and shed some light. So once I realized I was ready to do that, we started the, the journey there. And before we get into details about what is in the book, what do you hope your book achieves? <sighs> you know, I've got this question a lot and I've, I've given it some great thought. What I want my book to achieve is for it to be a guiding force for all the people who read it in knowing that if things sometimes go wrong for them, that they can push through. I want it to be a celebration of not only my life, but my mom and dad's life, my family, my teams, and, and you know, how, how living and, and chasing a dream can really be so amazing and exciting. And I want people to feel the, the situations and the, the promise of, of a better life for themselves. I mean, my book is, is I think, so you know, unique in the fact that I have amazing peaks and, and valleys of my life. I mean, there's really no in-between. It's I'm either on the mountaintop or I'm in the gutter with my face in it. And so I think it's a, it's a great book of resilience. And I feel like uh, the world really needs uh, an example of resilience right now. As I mentioned, we'll get into more details about what's in the book, but you and I were recording this on Wednesday and had a, a just a wonderful dinner together on, on Monday night here in New York that was one of the, the most fun nights I've had in a, in a really long time. Just really special and appreciate that. And we had a wonderful discussion and afterward, I realized I never once asked you, how are you? Um, because <laughs> you, your career ended on a concussion and it, and it caused years of heartache and, and, and so many things you had to deal with and you had surgeries. Like, how are you right now? <laughs> you know, I'm fantastic. And, and emotionally, you know, spiritually, uh, physically doing fantastically. And also my brain, which is obviously, you know, one of the major um, issues that I had was brain health, mental health is doing great. It really is. And um, I have Alzheimer's in my hereditary line. My mother had Alzheimer's, my grandmother had dementia. And so I, for the longest time thought I might be, you know, destined for some kind of 
brain uh, disease or issue. Um, as it turns out, my brain is healthy. I've actually had pictures of it <laughs> done recently, which will also be in my uh, new documentary, The Only, on July 12th. And I'm great. I'm great. And I feel like emotionally, I am in a, in a place of joy and happiness. I mean, I wake up, I've always been an optimist. I wake up in the morning and I feel good about where I am, who I am, what I'm doing. Because I used to take self-assessments every day when I was in a bad place and it was just more of the same. And it was so um, saddening and it, and it really weighed on me. And now I feel a lightness and a joy. And I know uh, for a fact that my physical health is, is really good. Fantastic. That is great to hear. Um, so we're going to get to some of the difficult things you've gone through, but I want to start with some sports stuff. Because as closely as I followed you, I did learn a lot of things reading this book that I didn't know about your career. And one was the influence of the 1980 U.S. men's ice hockey team on you, yes. which I didn't yes. know about. What was that influence? So I remember sitting on the couch with my mom and dad on either side and watching the Lake Placid ice hockey team. And I was eight years old and I understood somehow that I was watching greatness in front of me. And the fact that that, that team had just gotten completely demolished by the USSR a few weeks before, 10 to three, and here they were somehow making the impossible made possible. And it really had an influence on me. And Jim Craig just spinning around on his head, literally, you know, making all these saves. And I just really was in awe of that. And then they got the gold medal and that, that game was actually the semifinal and they got the gold medal in the final a few days later. And I just told my mom and dad, I want to be an Olympian. And, you know, the interesting thing was, um, they were on board. <laughs> it's eight year old little girls like, I want to be an Olympian. They were like, yes, you can, you can do whatever you set your mind to honey. And, uh, I, I, I got lucky and I realize now in my older age that I really did get lucky with the amazing parents that I had. And I had that inspiration, um, that seed of, 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 you know, that the, the flame was lit by that game and they nurtured and watered that flame and really spread it, spread it around and, and they supported it and they understood it. Um, and at the time, obviously, I wasn't really aware of how I was going to do something like that. But as a kid, you don't really worry about it. You're like, I want two pools. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be all these different things, right? You're talking about. And they seem so outlandish. But I mean, that's how people who do those things get there because they have a dream at some point in their lives. They believe in it. They chase it. And eventually, a lot of the time, and they grab it and they, and they live it. And so that was, that was mine um, at eight years old. Another thing I didn't realize was that you came into the U.S. women's national team at a slightly older age than many, but you went basically straight into the starting goalkeeper spot with the world champions. That must have taken an incredible amount of confidence on your part. How would you describe what that process was like for you coming into the U.S. women's national team? Well, let me tell you about that confidence and where that came from. That came straight from Jim Rudy, who was my head coach at UMass. 
he sat me down in his office in my sophomore year and said, Brian, I think you're good enough to play on the national team. And I said, oh, that's great, coach. I didn't know we had one. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I mean. Clueless at the time, right? I'm just doing my thing. I don't even know about all this other stuff around me and the possibilities. And he, he told me that he thought I was good enough. And I took his confidence in me and I made it my own. And so I just kept going. He said, you know, just keep learning, keep growing, keep becoming a better goalkeeper. And I was like, okay. And sure enough, um, you know, in the book, we learned, we meaning uh, Wayne and I, that Jim and Anson were really good friends and had been for a long time and actually coached together when they were younger. And so I, apparently uh, Anson and and Jim were talking about me way before I obviously knew anything and uh, he had his eye on me. And so I feel now when I go into my senior year and then I, you know, play against UNC in the NCAA final four and we get completely shellacked four to one. And I'm like, Oh no, (laughs) I had this awesome chance to show him how good I was in person. And I completely flopped on that, you know, four to one was like the most goals I gave up my entire career, I think at at that point. Um, and I get the invite like the next week I was like, what are you talking about? And Jim was like, no, you're going. And so, uh, going in, you know, to the camp five on the totem pole of five and in November 93 and then by March of 94, um, at number one. And, and the only way I can possibly describe how that happened is because, uh, you know, Anson, he had plans. He had plans for me before I knew what the plans were. We're going to skip a lot of, of stuff here. I suggest people read the book because there's wonderful details about all of it. You play in the 95 World Cup, uh, such high standards for the U.S., disappointment with going uh, out, uh, or not going out, but losing in the semifinals to a It's Norway. going out. When we don't win, it's going out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> losing in, in the semis is. to... To Norway, which I, I I got a full understanding of how much enmity there was between the two teams, and then beating them, Norway, in the '96 Olympics, on your way to the gold medal in that Olympics, and I think '96 was really interesting. That was when I started covering y'all because I was an intern at the Miami newspaper. I, I covered one of your games in Miami against China in that tournament. Um, but that was really the first time that you got mega crowds, the U.S. women's national team. And so that whole 96 Olympics, how do you view that now when you look back on it? Well, obviously, I was living my dream that I had since I was eight years old. I was in the Olympic Games. I was on a team that could actually win. And here I found myself in a, in a major role on that team. And going into that Olympic Games, there was a lot of talk about the possibility of this being the Olympics of the woman. Basically, all these women's teams uh, in different sports, obviously, had fantastic chances at winning gold all at the same time. Um, And we were one of them. And so that was really thrilling. Going into the Olympic uh, uh, opening ceremonies was, holy cow. (laughs) I mean, talk about a dream on fire. My goodness, coming around the bend and going into that stadium and all these people just erupting and cameras flashing. And well, I mean, it was just, wow, it was so cool. Um, This day is one of my most favorite things I've ever experienced in my life, other than my wedding, of course. 
And um, so that was just amazing. And going into that game, a lot of people were talking about us and there was a lot of, uh, you know, buzz about our, our team. But the irony of it was, is not a single live game was shown. Right. If you recall um, back then, they just showed, you know, clips of, of segments after the fact because other sports were shown live over us. And then we did have 76,000 uh, at the, at the um, Georgia Stadium in Athens um, for a final. And it was glorious. I think I saw no less than 20 of my family and friends in the crowd after the game. And we won it. We were there. It was just uh, so cool. And, and being on the podium, uh, it was just, I, I, I mean, you, you're my, my greatest, my greatest desire times a thousand. That's what it felt like. And to finally have it happen. Um, and that Olympics was so pivotal for women's athletics in this country. And I think that really launched a lot of, uh, change. In, in women's athletics and obviously, of course, soccer. Really cool video out recently on the 96 U.S. women's basketball team um, that I would suggest people see. There's so much great content coming out these days about stuff that should have been told a long time ago, but just finally being told, yeah, including we're, your stuff. We're finally getting there, right? Finally. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting about the 96, one of the legacies of 96 was that the big crowds convinced the organizers of the 99 Women's World Cup in the U.S. to put it in big NFL stadiums and places like the Rose Bowl and and it, it was a risk, but it was a risk that paid off because FIFA originally didn't want to do it. And the organizers said, we're going to do it. People like Marla Messing. And y'all filled it and became literally the cultural story of the summer of 1999, way beyond just a sports story. And I still remember just being so lucky to cover it for Sports Illustrated. And, and after... So I, I remember doing a story. I'm going to find it on the SI Vault. I'll post the link for on you in after the semifinal in 99. My feature story was on you because uh, you had an amazing game against Brazil. And then you win it and end up on the cover of Sports Illustrated the same week as on the cover of People Magazine and Time Magazine, which shows how transcendent it was. And I'm wondering when you look back at 99, what stands out to you now that maybe didn't as much when you were closer to it? Yeah, I mean, so I think a lot of us um, on the team, myself included, were so focused on what we were trying to achieve that we really didn't allow ourselves to get caught up in the, the groundswell that was occurring you know, in the country at the time. I mean, granted, our timing was spectacular, um, it was the, you know, the dog days of summer, uh, if you will. And so we were, we were a hot story. And as everything built up going into that final, um, Robin Roberts popped out to, to California to interview me. And that's pretty much when I really hit, it, it really hit me. I really felt it. I'm like, okay, we are, we are doing something special. And she was talking to me about how special it was from her point of view as someone who's outside looking in. And it was really an eye opener for me. And I think, you know, some people would call that, you know, maybe a bit naive, but we were totally focused. I mean, you know how it is, Grant, you lock down when you're trying to do something like this and, and you try to keep everything out, in, including, you know, making too many decisions or, or too much information or whatnot. And there was no social media back then either. And so 
you know, we were really focused on what we were trying to do because we realized we were getting these great crowds, we had like great crowds, but we, if we don't win this thing, it's <laughs> a problem. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, anticlimactic to say the least. So I was really focused. I, I realized that it, then that was, it was, you know, going to be big, but now looking back on it, I can, I can trace back so many things that started from that summer and that game and, you know, including you know, clothing lines for women only you know nike had come into the soccer game in the in the five years before that with with our team i was one of the original five nike girls in soccer period nike didn't have a thing in soccer at all you know years ago and we were able to really launch their their company in the soccer field um and and all these different things looking back that can be traced back to that equal pay obviously was traced back to that. All these other countries looking at their women's teams in a different way um, can be traced back to that. All these different leagues, our league started here in the United States directly because of uh, the 99 World Cup win and the inspiration it, it provided. And so there's so many different things to to look at. And that's that's not even, you know, there was no thought of that at the time that it would have that kind of impact uh, reverberating in the decades to come. I'm, I'm going to share something with you that I actually forgot to mention the other night when I saw you, which is, so you had the biggest save in American soccer history in the penalty kick shootout against China. And um, I had a conversation during the Women's World Cup in 2019 in France with Pierre Luigi Colina, who is one of the most famous referees of all time. Uh, and he actually runs the referee department, the officiating department for FIFA now. Very uh, unique looking guy, ball like me, like, like, but famous ref. And, and he and I were talking in 2019, I was sort of miffed about how ridiculous things had gotten with a goalkeeper being like two inches off the line on uh, on penalties and having them be retaken after they made a save. And he was sort of adamant with me. And in, in part of the conversation, he was like, well, you remember the 99 Women's World Cup final when the American goalkeeper was so far off her line. And he was sort of casting aspersions on you. And I said to him, this is a direct quote, um, no referee called it. It wasn't on her. Exactly. And, exactly. And so, like, like, and in those days, it never got called. Ever. I can't remember it being called Ever. in those days. And people are looking at it now in terms of, like, how we view that rule today. And in 99, there really wasn't any discussion at the time about it. And by the way, the Chinese goalkeeper was off her line, too. Um and so <laughs> Thank you. I, just, I just wanted to share that with you, that I had that conversation with him and I stood up to one of the more intimidating referees of all time. And, um, and that's, that's what I would say today, um, because I know that that comes up somewhat today, doesn't it, with, with you? It does. It does. And I appreciate that, Grant. It's, al it's almost like, you know, you and I are of the same mind because... <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's true. It's true. Um, people, people sometimes not as much anymore, but every once in a while, if they're doing a story on me and they watch some, some video of that save, they're like, Whoa, she's way out there. You know what I mean? And I'm like, well, the referee is standing right there, right there. And not, not a single warning at any point in time. And I, I was doing that for every single kick and guess what? So was Gal. 
for every single kick. She just didn't get a hand on anything. And so that's all it was. It really was not an, a rule that was enforced at all. And you look at the men's leagues back then, goalkeepers were doing the same thing. And so it was one of those things where it was referee's discretion and the discretion was to not call it. And, you know, the game of soccer is like that all the time. You've got situations where a lot of referees decide not to call PKs in a certain time of the game at the end of the half or end of the game. That's their discretion. And, and that's the same thing for this. I'm glad we cleared that up. Um, Thank you. It's <laughs> still the greatest save Thanks of all time. Thanks for standing but... up to that referee for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I, I'm also wondering, and it's interesting because I covered this event, but I didn't think about it much at the time if at all, to be honest, were you the only 99er who was openly gay at the time? Yes, I was. I was. And, and, and it's interesting because now several of them are now out, but they were not at the time. And I was the only one on my team that was openly gay. My, my teammates were absolutely fabulous about it all the time. So supportive and amazing. My girlfriend actually lived with me in the residency at that time, that whole six months before the 99 World Cup. And so, yes, I was the only one. A lot of people I've talked to since then about that, um, you know, they, they were nervous about doing that, um, you know, fearing, you know, some, you know, missing out on some opportunities, maybe with sponsors or partners or, or perceptions and whatnot. But I obviously didn't have any issue with it. It's really interesting to me because Megan Rapinoe is about as out as you can be at this point. And, and yet people forget Megan didn't come out publicly until 2011, I think after the 2011 World Cup. And, and so that's at any point in time, it's probably maybe somewhat easier to do now, but it's never easy. Right. It's never easy. And the interesting thing is in, in her situation, she probably had a sense of, okay, maybe it's okay for me now. And then guess what happened? Her career went, whew, it just took off from there. And she's had great, you know, World Cup, uh, you know, 2015, obviously, 2019, you know, fantastic, huge wins and been a leader and probably the most well-known player on the team in both of those instances. And I don't, I don't think coming out has hurt her in the least. If anything, it's probably helped. You're also the only black starter on the 99 US team. And I'm wondering how regularly were you aware of that? You know, and, and that's a great question. Reg how, how, how was I aware? Um, I think my whole life, I always knew I was the only because I was on so many teams, on every team in my youth with every sport I played in, just because in part because of where we lived. And I just felt like I was meant to do the things I was doing. It was just uh, destined for me to do these things. I just always felt like if I'm going to go and try to play on this team and play this sport, I'm just going to do it with all my heart and all my, all my spirit. And I'm just going to go for it. And if I look different than everybody else, I feel like it's almost like something that everybody notices and I don't, I don't really notice it. Um, it doesn't hinder me. It doesn't hurt me. I mean, I think people might say, well, Brian, do you feel like you ever had to be twice as good because you, you know, were the only black girl or twice as good because you were the only gay girl? I don't think so. I never thought that way. It's interesting because I have a lot more interesting perspective on that. Um, in, in, in now that I'm older, 
in part because I think I'm wiser now and I'm just looking at these things from different angles because people ask me about it. But at the time, which is what I tried to do with my book, write how I was at the time. Um, no, no, no hindrances, no feeling of uh, being lonely or anything like that or feeling um, like I was just by myself. I never felt that way at all. It is a different time now and we were talking earlier about how there's more cool content more video stories books about things that happened with women's sports in the 90s and at other occasions and i do wonder if 99 had happened today how many more endorsements <laughs> do you think you would get than you did then i think i'd be worldwide international as the Black Eyed Peas say, I mean, I would be just embraced, uh, partnered with, uh, I would be, you know, have a social media following like, you know, Sydney LaRue or Venus Williams or Serena Williams. Uh, I would probably be like a rock star because of the way things went, how unique I am and how I would be perceived. And um, social media, we didn't have that. And I think it would be a very different um, a very different outcome than I had back then. I was just before my time. I truly believe that. But the cool thing about that is, is I feel what I didn't get in maybe financial windfall, I have this very um, powerful feeling of accomplishment and this humbleness and this generosity and graciousness because I did plow the field for people to come behind me. And I think if I hadn't done that and felt that way about it, that maybe I might feel like I was shorted or, you know, maybe, you know, wondering where's mine, that kind of thing. But I don't feel that way at all. And I'm, I'm grateful that I was the one to plow the field for other people to come behind me. That's a great way of putting it. Um, a few more questions here with Brian. I appreciate you taking this much time to talk. Um, you also write about, because you get into everything in this book, you write about the weight gain <laughs> that you had after 99. And I had never seen it put in such stark terms as like the two lines where you say, on the 99 final day, you weighed 145 pounds. And just a few months later, you were at 175. Um, and you lost your starting job. What happened and how did you come back from it? So what happened was I was drinking my own Kool-Aid, if you will. I basically had this amazing breakthrough on July 10th, 1999. The next day I was world, you know, world famous, basically. All these people knew who I was and my team was America's sweethearts. And I remember being in Pasadena two days later and I was walking down the street with my girlfriend at the time and this guy was driving down the road. He slams on his brakes, puts his car in park, open the door, run over to me, screw you're awesome, high fives me and runs back into his car. <laughs> that was standing in the middle of the road, like running parked and people were like, hey, buddy, let's go. And that's when I knew I was like, wow, that was crazy. <laughs> and all these different things happened. And, and all of a sudden I was in high demand. And the beauty of that is I was all over the place. I was in New York. I did Rosie O'Donnell. I went to you know the, the, the Broadway show Rent. I was doing Regis and Kathy Lee, Jay Leno, all these things all over the place like people do when they break through. And I was traveling all over and I lost sight of what was important. 
So as this was happening, there was a couple of things. I lost track of what I was supposed to be doing. I was doing um, all these eating different foods and all this food, not training, not focusing on, on proper sleep. And I think also I was in my late twenties and I think my metabolism was starting to change at the exact same time. And so before I knew it, I had gained some weight and I noticed my pants were fitting a little snug and, and whatnot. And I wasn't really too worried about it, but then it got to a point where I saw the weight gain, but I didn't see the weight gain. And then when we went back into camp for 2000 Olympic games, there was also a coaching change, if you recall. And April Heinrichs was now the coach. She brought in new people and every new coach wants to make their mark on the team. So they basically come in with guns blazing. You know, this is how it is. It's still that way, by the way. And all these different demands, fitness wise and whatnot. So goalkeepers were required to be a lot more fit. And I was overweight and had too much weight on my frame and ended up with shin splints after a couple weeks of training. The injury was you know, hot and, and painful. I missed the camp. I missed the tour in Brazil. And before you knew it, I was on the wrong side of things. And April was offended by the whole thing. And I was angry because she was choosing Siri Molinex over me for all these games. And I thought I deserved at least a little bit of runway to get back in shape. And I finally did, but it was too late. I got back in shape, I'd say by April, May of that year. But by then April had made her choice. And to her credit, you know, it took me a long time to understand that I was the one that was wrong, that I had self-sabotaged, that I betrayed and let my teammates down and April. And she told me later, she said, Bri, the goalkeeper position was the one position I didn't think I had to make a decision on. She's like, I thought I had that locked down. And her I lost my spot, didn't play a single minute in the Olympic Games. And then I was angry and there was a cloud of emotion and, and my state of mind, and this is so important, my state of mind was completely anger, almost like a storm, right? All the time. And so everything I was in and everything I did, you could get this energy coming from me that wasn't inviting and wasn't me at all. It wasn't powerful. It wasn't peaceful. It wasn't Bry. And I was living that way for that whole year. And that year was absolutely miserable to the point where I really don't like recall a lot of the other parts of that year because I was just such a storm. So what happened in order for me to change everything was I was at home, got a uh, envelope in the mail from a, a reporter from somewhere that wanted my autograph. The picture they wanted autographed was me in that first camp in Chula Vista, and I could not believe my eyes. I mean, people talk about how they don't see things and because it's gradual with you or whatever, but this picture, I was like, oh, I was huge. And my face was bloated and my body was huge. And I was like, that's what they saw. No wonder, no wonder, Bri, that she couldn't trust you. And she was upset and your teammates and you let everybody down. So I realized I had self-sabotage and that finally clicked in my brain. And then off, off, off I went, I started researching nutrition, training, sleep, you know, getting, getting fitter. I started lifting like a crazy person, you know, expanding my explosiveness and my muscle mass and all these things. And then I was basically, you know, like a rocket ship and I got so fit and I was 
way better than I was in 99. So I was up here, then I was like down here, then I just went past my previous peak in terms of how good I was. And I wanted to be the best Brianna Scurry at that point, not just better than the next closest goalkeeper competing for the spot. And off I went. Yeah, it's really interesting how 2000 uh, Olympics, U.S. doesn't win. Uh, 2003 Women's World Cup, U.S. doesn't win. 2004 Olympics, and the U.S. does win, and you just play amazingly well. I saw highlights recently of you in that tournament and was just like, oh, wow. Um, and <laughs> Oh, wow. (laughs) I know you had lost your father, Ernest, in 2004, not long before the Olympics. And then you played so well in the Olympics, won the gold medal, performed amazingly. How hard was that year for you when you look back on it? It was so, it was just emotional toil. I was training for the Olympics. April and I had reconciled and saw eye to eye. I asked her earlier that year, I, when we were going for qualifying in Costa Rica, I asked her for a meeting and we sat down and I said, Oh, I just want you to know my dad is ill. It's really, you know, touch and go with him. I said, he's in the ICU right now. He had a heart attack recently. I may need to go home. Like literally on the moment's notice. Is that, is that okay? And she said, Bri, you do what you got to do. It's more than okay no worries, go ahead if you got to go. And and fortunately, at that time, I didn't have to go during that tournament. But, you know, every break after every um, camp or tournament we had that year, I'd go home every single time. And before that, I would go home multiple times a year, but I was going home every single time at this point and just being with him. And it was, I was, I could see it, you know? I could see his deterioration each time I'd go home. It'd be a few weeks and and I would see him and he's just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And he had amputated his leg below the knee because he was diabetic and had kidney failure and was on dialysis and all these things were happening. And he had had strokes before. And, and, uh, but his, his spirit was so good still. I mean, he fought his way as best he could. And I was, so torn because my dad was sick and my mom was caring for him and I was training for the Olympics, which meant that they couldn't come to see the games in person. And also that meant that, you know, he was dying and I knew it. I knew it. I'd say about three weeks before he died, I was on a walk with my dogs. I lived in Atlanta at the time and I just felt something as I was walking my dogs like this, it's coming, it's coming soon. And I said, dad, I'm okay. Mom, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to take care of mom. Don't worry. And literally three weeks later, I found myself in Minnesota. We were doing a, a, a tour and I got the call. You know, I had seen him earlier that day. I asked my coaches if I could stay at my mom's house for the couple of days we were there instead of the team hotel. They were great. April was fantastic. And I was with my mom after I had seen my dad earlier and the phone rings at 1130, 1145. And you can't, I mean, you know what that means. You know, why else would the phone ring? Answer the phone, get to the hospital now. You know, Ernie has essentially coded. He passed, you know, he died and we revived him. Get here as fast as you can. So we go get into the hospital. I'd seen him earlier that day. And I believe to this day that he, he waited, he waited for me that day to come. And then he saw me 
and then he was ready. And so he passed. And these this entire time I'm training for the Olympic Games. So I'm in so many minds. So on one side, I'm training for this amazing experience that I've wanted my whole life and I have a great opportunity to go again. And on the other hand, my father's slipping away. He's the first parent that I would lose and I lost him. And now I'm dealing with grief and I don't understand it. And I have these two conflicting things like basically tearing me apart. In some moments, I'm okay and in moments, I'm crying and I stayed home for that whole week and just took care of everything for my mom and spoke at my dad's funeral, the eulogy and um, paid for everything for that to happen. And then I knew I had to go back to the team and my mom said to go and I knew my dad would want me to. So I went back and everybody was fantastic. I mean, you know, the more I talk about this stuff and think about it, my teammates were amazing. I'd be crying in the locker room. They would just put their hand on my shoulder and just, you know, comfort me. And I would just be bawling and I'd get through it and then, you know, go and do the thing. Like I just cry through. Right. And so I was really struggling back and forth. And then I went back to camp, like I said, and I started to really feel depressed. And Naomi Gonzalez, who is our massage therapist, she could feel the emotion. I mean, she knew what had happened, but she could feel it in my muscles. I was, I was, I was literally, you know, it was resonated in my muscles. It was manifesting in that way. I was having, you know, these different uh, places in your body where pain and stress collect and she could see and feel it in my, in my, in my body. And so she felt really, um, really sad because she could feel my energy. We started seeing each other in a different way. And she started to feel empathy for me. And I wasn't really thinking about it at the time, but that we were starting to have emotions and feelings for each other. So here you have me. I am thrilled about the Olympic Games on this side. I'm grieving my dad on this side. And I'm starting to have a little bit of a groundswell of a, of a, of a love and kind of emotional. I really like her kind of in the middle. I was just like, woo, like over the place, all the, all the emotions at the same time. And it was crazy. It was crazy. But you know what? It was powerful. And I, I, I figured out because the thing that happened that allowed me to um, harness all of this, like literal on the razor's edge of all these emotions was now that my father had passed, my mom could come mm-hmm. to the Olympics in person if she was ready. And I think that's what really helped me be able to just go like this with all these things and bring them together and really just put them in a ball and use it. And I, like you said, I had the most amazing tournament of my life. I felt my dad's presence the entire time. Then my mom got there in the quarterfinals and boy, you know, there was no, there was no way you were going to beat us at that point. I feel, I still feel that to this day. Like it was just meant to be, we were going to do that thing and we did it. Thank you for sharing all of this. I, I, I realize also I've, I've kept you longer than I told you I would and you have other interviews. Do you have time for a no couple worries. more questions? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, okay. totally. It also reminds me too, a little bit that 2004 Olympics, I remember it was like Brazil in the final and Marta's first big tournament. And I came away thinking, oh, they're going to win everything in the coming years. And they never have, by the way, Brazil has never won a major title still. And so it also reminds me how hard it is to win the major titles that you all won. And, um, and to, to actually make it happen. So every single one that you've won has a struggle that, that goes with it. Um, now, in the book, one thing you don't hold back on are your feelings about what happened in 2007 at that World Cup. And 
feelings toward Hope Solo and how she responded to Greg Ryan's decision to change things and start you in the semifinal instead of her against Brazil, which the U.S. lost. When you look back at it 15 years later, what are your thoughts? So I have a few things that I feel about that. And in my interviewing with the book, um, with different people, they have the same thoughts about it. For one, you know, it was never guaranteed that if she had played, we would win. But just the way she perceived it was that, you know, she was going to win that game if she played. And, and that's not that's not correct. Also, I felt and I talk about this in the book that, like you said, it's so hard to win these games, especially at that point of a tournament. And Greg Ryan made a decision And I said in the book, I appreciate that some people think it's an unorthodox decision. I don't disagree that it was, but coaches make decisions all the time. And sometimes they make unorthodox decisions according to other people's perceptions. But obviously, Greg had a a confidence in me and a faith in me in that game. And he trusted me to be able to do the job. And unfortunately, the way she handled it was basically, you know, with a really un, 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 a very emotional and, and not a very controlled way. You know, she was throwing furniture around and all this stuff essentially exploded. Fortunately, by doing that and feeling like she was wrong, that she deserved that, that um, opportunity, you know, she didn't see it as a privilege to be on a team that could win. And so she poisoned the well, essentially. She, you know, sowed discord with the team as soon as she found out. And because of that, and the fact that it was so hard to win games anyway, you can't have all this tumult in the ranks with the team in order to win a game. And she had disrupted the, the team so much in that couple, that few hours before that game that it was just like a, a swirling of a hurricane, she was like. And so it made it really, really hard for everybody to give their all and pull together and move forward. And I feel that she, and this is sad to say, was okay with burning it all down. And she essentially torpedoed the ship before the ship even set sail on that day. And my situation, it would have been a Herculean effort and an attempt for me anyway, without her being disruptive. If she had pulled together with me, as she had believed in me and supported me and said, okay, I, I don't agree with the decision. I don't like it, but this is what's what it is. And I'm going to support you anyway, like I had been all along. Um, I think it could have been a different outcome. And I, and I was so sad because I had supported her that entire time and leading up to that. And also with her father who passed away a few months before, just like mine. And, you know, I was just like, wow, this is so bizarre and so similar. And I'm so sorry. I remember sitting at her bedside when we found out she was a kid, we were at camp and I was holding her hand and crying with her. And I just felt like, you know, she just poisoned the well and no one should feel like they have the right to do that because it's a team sport. And essentially she, you know, by doing that didn't give us all a fair chance to perform at our best. And so when you play a team like Brazil, holy cow, you better be on, uh, you know, I play, I played them at, I think, 10 times, and won 10 times up until that point. And even at my best, it's hard to beat them. And I mean, the semifinal against them in 99 was a Herculean effort to beat them. And so they were in a, in a, in a pole position and they had been playing well. And we came out there, we were flat, and then we were torn to shreds by them. And it's interesting because it was all of us, 
not just me. And unfortunately, all of us were affected by the way she handled it. And that's really the unfortunate thing, in my opinion. In 2010, in the WPS, you suffered a, a debilitating concussion in a game. What happened and, and what was the impact for you of that? Yeah, so I was thinking about the game earlier in the day, like I always do when I'm going to start. I had a weird feeling, actually. And uh, it took me a long time to be able to even talk about that. I had a weird feeling about the game that day. And I would never like truly understand what the feelings were. I would have these weird feelings every once in a while, kind of like I did against in the 99 World Cup, where I had a feeling that this was going to be the one I was going to save. So that was a good thing, right? But this, in this case, it didn't feel, feel good. And so I went into that game and we were playing Philadelphia. I was with the Washington Freedom at the time. And we were in Philly and there was a low ball shot by Lori Lindsay on my left hand side. Ball came in. I, I bent down to get it. Routine. Done it a million times. And to my right side, I didn't see Sanderson coming in to try to nip in front. She collided with me on the side of my head with her knee. We both bundle over. And my first thought is, did I make the escape? Of course, you know, that's what you know, goalkeepers do. And I had the ball in my hands, and I just remember just feeling off. Like all of a sudden I was tilty. I just felt woozy and something was wrong. And I had pain in the right side of my head, but I also had pain like behind my left ear. And I thought that was weird at the time. And I stood up and referee's like, let's go keep, let's go, you know, no foul called by the way. And I kicked the ball out. And I remember seeing the names on the back of my teammates' jerseys were blurry. I remember like feeling a little tilty to my left-hand side as I was walking. I mean, the ball was like, you know, frames of the ball flying at me because my vision was off and I just felt sick. I, I felt woozy. The light was like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't super bright out, but I just felt the sensitivity thing. And there was a few more minutes in the half left. And so I played the rest of the half and then halftime blew. And I was walking over to my trainer, kind of like tilting to the left as I was walking over there and she's coming to me and she takes my hands and she says, Briar, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. And that was the last game I played. And I said this to you the other night, I'll say it publicly now. Um, I remember seeing you in 2011 during the Women's World Cup in, in Germany and, and you were doing stuff for ESPN. And um, I, I know I'm not the only one who feels this now, but still like, I feel like I, I wish I had asked you more about how you were doing. Like just this, the basic, how are you question. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't, um, but what sort of what happened in those years that you were dealing with that, that you didn't really share much with folks? Yeah, so many things. I mean, this happened in, in April of 2020. So all of the protocols and the usual um, procedures for concussion, baseline testing, all these things, I failed miserably. The only reason I passed the baseline test was because I, I did so many of them and I finally came back to what I had already done and was able to get there and get the, over the threshold to be released from doing that part. But I never, I never could be um, declared, you know, okay. So it was season ending that year. Then it was career ending in my mind because I knew I wasn't okay. I mean, I had the basket of concussion symptoms. I had the headaches from one side and then also this side, which was, this was the mystery side. And that, that took a long time to figure out what that was about. And sensitivities to sound movement and light. I had um, cognitive issues. I had you know, 
trouble memorizing things, trouble receiving, you know, re, re, uh, reclaiming the files and learning and emotional issues. The emotional part was the, the heaviest part of it. And that's the piece that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, I slid into a depression and a lot of people are like, well, Brian, you were, your career was over. So maybe that's why you're depressed. And I was like, no, that, that I could have dealt with that because I was getting ready. You know, I knew my time was, was, was nigh, if you will. And so I wasn't that devastated about not playing soccer anymore because I was on my way. I had a leg out already into retirement, but I didn't have the most powerful weapon in my arsenal, which is my mind has always been the one thing that I've been able to use and to get me anywhere I needed to go. If I had to learn something, I could learn it. If I had to you know, understand something, I could do that. But my brain was a thing that was broken and my mind was broken. And so instead of being able to move on and transition, I was stuck. And so I became the general manager. Back then, the team was sold to Magic Jack um, owner uh, Dan Borislaw at the time. He bought the team. He moved it from D.C. to uh, West Palm Beach. Complete disaster, as you know. Um, for me, that summer, I became the GM for the team. And I was also already going to be um, with ESPN doing the broadcasting for the Women's World Cup that, that summer. And my boss, Dan, knew that, that I was leaving. So I left for that nightmare. Cried every day after the broadcast because I couldn't keep the thoughts in my mind. I couldn't find the things I wanted to say. I'm trying to study all this paperwork and all these different teams and styles and formations and the goalkeepers and all this stuff. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't learn it. And then I couldn't find it as I learned it. I mean, your brain is like a filing system. And so, you know, even in speech, you, you, you remember the words you want to say, you put the sentences together, together in your mind and you speak them. I couldn't understand if I was saying stuff properly, I would write emails and look at them the next day and there were tenses and there were words mixed up and missing and all this stuff was happening. And it was just, you know, a real conundrum I was going through and you could see it in my eyes, actually, if, if you, if you saw me back then, you could see there was a dimness in my eyes and I wasn't my normal self at all. I wasn't that, that person who could, you know, essentially, uh, you know, rip, rip, like just whatever she wanted out of, out of, out of the world and, and, and claim it. Um, I wasn't that person anymore because my light was out essentially, um, disconnected, uh, sliding just into an abyss, all this, all this tumult. Dan wasn't the best boss in the world either. Um, he's passed on since then. So bless his soul, but he just wasn't the best boss in the world. As you know, there's so many problems with him, including all these different things that are uh, of, of debate now with leaders of teams and coaches and whatnot. And so I got fired basically when I was in Germany, um, and I came back and I moved to New Jersey and that was the beginning of the real hard time for me, you know, came into financial issues on, you know, unemployment, then fighting the insurance company to get treatment for my concussion. They didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to pay for anything, battling them with my lawyers, you know, I mean, just, and all the time, all along, I'm, you know, trying to like climb up that wall to get out of that hole and the entire time just sinking lower and lower, you know, a step up and then two steps back. And before you know it, there's no light at all. And that was the really dark time in 2013 when I was so depressed. The insurance company was messing around with me. My finances were, you know, depleting. I didn't have anything of value. I was living in a, a studio apartment. Um, tiny little place in Little Falls, New Jersey. Um, just 
trying to figure out how to go from one day to another, having these debilitating headaches that always started from the left-hand side of my, behind my ear, all the way up into my head. And by the end of the day, just, you know, booming in my head, you know, just like a vice, like it just was like a, and I couldn't even think it was just so, so painful. And I was self-medicating, you know, with alcohol and Vicodin, which is a horrible combination, um, just really struggling and sliding into the abyss. And I was suicidal. And I tell you what, you know, the thing that stopped it, um, stopped me from doing it was the thought of a law enforcement officer knocking on my mom's door to inform her that her baby was gone. I could not bear it. I could not bear it. And so I didn't do it. And then shortly after that, my lawyers were working on it. We got a procedure that we thought would work for me. It was experimental. The insurance company would not pay. I didn't have the money. And before I knew it, something was happening that I had no control over. My ex, Naomi, and her partner, Fran, started this company called Tomboy Exchange. They started a Kickstarter campaign, which is you know the platform that helps you get things moving in business. And my current wife, Krissa, she got on that Kickstarter campaign at the time and invested in Tomboy. They had a conversation, they had dinner. And at that dinner that I knew nothing about, my friend Naomi told Krissa about my flight with the insurance company, that the insurance company wasn't doing the right thing and I needed this, this surgery and they weren't gonna pay. And Krissa owned a PR firm. And Naomi thought, hmm, maybe she can put some pressure on the insurance company to pay for this procedure for Bry. So she told her about me. And sure enough, as soon as we got talking, I told her my story. I laid it all out there completely like I'm like in my book. I just laid it out there for her, you know, warts and all, as they say. And she got together with my lawyers and they came up with a plan. The lawyers called the insurance company and said, look, you need to do this right thing for Bry. If you don't do it, you're going to get some press and you're not going to like it. And sure enough, ever since then, bam, everything turned around. They said yes to the procedure. Before you knew it, I was off to the races. Lifeline of my great friend, Naomi and Krissa, basically taking my arm and pulling me out of that hole and finally able to get the procedure done. And a year later of therapy, Grant, a year, and I was on my way. Wow. It's such an, uh, an amazing story. And I know at one point you sold your... Uh, Olympic gold medals. You have them back now. Yes. Um, and it's. I pawned them. Let's be clear. Pawn. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're already. You're you're so much into I the get, getting them. everything out there. No euphemisms. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. The definition of pawn <laughs> and sold. And they were not sold. They were still potentially mine, but just loaned to the to the company until I paid off that loan. Got it. Um, I'm glad you have your, your medal still. I'm glad that things have turned around in such a profound way. I'm glad that your story is out there in the world and you've told it so, so well in your book. Um, you're, you have a film coming out about you on July 12th, you mentioned on Paramount Plus called The Only. Um, and... It, it just gives me such, I don't know, like, I, I'm so thankful that um, that you're doing this, that you've done it so well and with such dignity. And thank you. thank you for 
all of that and for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Grant. You know, as you said, you and I go way back. So I've always appreciated you and respected you. And, and thank you for truly helping uh, spread soccer in this country and to tell the stories of, of people um, who play the beautiful game. So thank you for that. The book is called My Greatest Save, The Brave Barrier-Breaking Journey of a World Champion Goalkeeper. Brian Scurry is doing all sorts of stuff these days. She does speaking engagements, which you should hire her for. Uh, you're on CBS doing studio work. You're going to be doing that coming up with uh, the CONCACAF Women's World Cup Qualifying and Olympic Tournament. You're everywhere, Brian. I'm very happy about that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Grant. I appreciate it. And my book is available everywhere, too. And my next goal is hopefully New York Times bestselling author. And you know about that, Grant. So let's go. Let's, let's go. go. LFG. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Brianna Scurry, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.